So, Lord, I do pray that you continue to share your heart with us. That, God, that you pour yourself out upon our communities. That you open our eyes to those far from you around us. God, that you, you teach us and show us um, how to not listen to that part of us that, that just wants to be comfortable. But, God, but how to listen to your love and your compassion. That voice instead. And that as we do so, God, that we grow closer to you and then we learn to love like you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, guys. Thank you all. Well, good morning again, everybody. It is such a joy to be with you. And can you believe that Good Friday Easter is right around the corner? I I mean, I looked at my calendar. I was like, whoa! (laughs) All right, got to get on the ball. It's coming. Um, But in our journey toward Good Friday and Easter, uh, we've been taking an honest look at what it means to be truly free. Truly free. And now just even using this word every single week, I, I have to right away try to separate or parse out the difference between what our society means by the word freedom and what Jesus in the scriptures mean by freedom. Because our society's definition or understanding of freedom is not the same as what Jesus taught or modeled. For example, most of the time when people talk about freedom around us, they're talking about the the removal of restrictions so that we can do what we want to do. I'm out of my parents' house, beyond their rules, I'm free. Right? That, That kind of thing. But for Jesus... Freedom is not just taking away the wrong restrictions, but it's embracing the right ones. A pastor from New York uh, named Tim Keller uh, illustrates it like this. He says, imagine that you take a fish out of water and put it on the grass. Is that fish free? No. No. Why? Because it was never meant to survive outside the boundaries of water. And when Jesus declared... Those whom I have set free will be free indeed. He was announcing that he was making a way for us to enter the waters of a life-giving relationship with our God. The freedom is not the removal of restrictions so that we can do what we want, but it's the desire and ability to live in the life our Creator designed. And if you want an example of what that kind of freedom looks like, See Jesus. See Jesus. You know, he told a group of Jewish leaders, he said, Very truly I tell you, the Son, which is, this is a name he used for himself, can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees the Father doing, because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. Well, why does he live that way? Because, a few verses later, in the Father is life. That Jesus only lived in the waters of of God's will and his love. He understood that the boundaries of God around us are actually for our good. And he completely trusted them so that he lived in complete freedom. Because God's design is for our good, not our bondage. And for that reason, Jesus is the example of a person who lived truly free. And today... As we learn how to be free people, how to live as a free people Christ calls us to be, we're focusing on a moment when Jesus' freedom was unmistakable. No exaggeration. It's a picture of freedom unlike the world has ever known. 
And for that, we're going to be turning to the end of Luke's gospel. But if you follow or ever read Luke's gospel, you're going to see that there there are moments from the beginning and and then scattered throughout where Jesus, it keeps telling his disciples, sometimes straight up, sometimes suggesting that there will come a time for him to die. This is not an accident. This is actually God's plan to forgive and atone for sin. But by the time we get to the end of Luke's gospel, to the moment we'll see in a moment, I don't know that any of us could have anticipated the kind of suffering that it would entail. Arrest, betrayal, slandered in this kangaroo court, whipped 39 times, mocked, and then stripped naked and nailed to a post between two criminals for all to see. That what Jesus experienced wasn't just physical, but a psychological, emotional suffering greater than any of us could possibly imagine. Yet, in that moment, how did he respond? And this is what I want us to see. He said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Even in the height of agony, Jesus was free to love. As everything was stripped from him, Jesus forgives. And just looking at that scene illuminates my grudge-prone heart. And this is the thing we're talking about today. The thing that we all need to be set free from is bitterness and unforgiveness. What holds many of us back from living free like Jesus We're really good at holding grudges against others. Last week I said that we would be talking about anxiety again. But this past Monday, God made it clear, no, 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 that's not what you're going to be talking about. You're going to be talking about bitterness instead. Because at the very core of our faith here is a man who died to forgive his enemies. Yet I can be so quick to be angry and hold a grudge against somebody who just says the wrong thing. But I'm making the case today that to forgive is to be truly free. So let's pray, and then we're going to dive in. So Lord, I do pray that as as we have this picture in front of us of you, our Lord, on a cross, looking at your very murderers, saying, Father, forgive them, God, that we will not be allowed to be left unchanged. That just seeing who you are, God, will, that you by your spirit will do a work in our hearts. And that you will set us free. God, I don't know how Jesus could have possibly found the strength to forgive in a moment like that. So I pray that you just meet us right where we are. And you show us as a kind father what does freedom look like for us. In Jesus' name. Amen. I don't think I have to explain to anybody in here what bitterness feels like. Is that fair? I mean, we all know like, like that, that loneliness when somebody's betrayed you or that, that pain when they've harmed you, harmed somebody you love, that ache that, that is left over from abuse or maybe even just, just the pain of neglect. But people can be cruel, heartless, downright mean and when deeply wronged it almost feels unfair for me to even talk about something like forgiveness 
What seems most natural is to instead talk about why, all the reasons why that person is wrong and you're right. Or all the reasons why we should be angry with ourselves, even. That feels most natural. But what I need us to see, or at least consider this morning, is that while bitterness holds us in bondage, forgiveness is the only way to freedom. June 17th, 2015, some church leaders gathered for a Bible study very similar to the way we do in a church called the Emanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church in Charleston, South Carolina. Interestingly, Emanuel AME was founded in 1817, the exact same year this church began. But on that horrific day in June, a 21-year-old man named Dylan Roof attended a Bible study for an hour before turning and opening fire on everybody there. And in his hatred, he murdered nine people. Pure evil. After that, many people wondered, questioned, how could this church ever heal after something like that? But then at Ruth's trial, a woman named Nadine, who was a daughter of one of the victims, said this to him. And I still can't get over this. She said this to him. You took something very precious from me. And I will never talk to her ever again. And I will never be able to hold her again. But I forgive you. And then one by one, family members of victims came up and said the same to Ruth. I forgive you. But what's surprising to me, I mean, like their words, shocking. But then the response is because you had a lot of cultural commentators and journalists after that who almost spoke against their forgiveness as something that only perpetuates the evil that Ruth committed. In fact, there was one journalist with the Washington Post named Stacey Patton who wrote an opinion piece titled, Black America Should Stop Forgiving White Racists. Why? Because to her, forgiveness is not freedom. That it perpetuates bondage. Revenge brings justice brings freedom. And this view is increasingly common in our society. And while we recognize that injustice is very real, Tim Keller said in an article called The Fading of Forgiveness, he says, most of us have been formed by a culture that nourishes revenge and mocks grace. Why? Well, because we believed that revenge brings freedom, brings justice, Forgiveness neglects it. And I understand, like that, that's a common understanding for a lot of people. At least if you may not say, that's crazy, but well, how do we live? At this point, I think it's important that we first talk about what forgiveness is and what it's not. Because forgiveness is not minimizing or forgetting the harm others have done. Right, just like the, the, those of the Amy Church, they did not minimize or forget the kind of harm that was done to them. That forgiveness is necessary for reconciliation, but it's not the same as reconciliation either. Reconciliation is the mending of a relationship. It, require, it is a two-way street that requires repentance for wrong done, the desire to make things right, and a process for rebuilding trust. You know, we forgive... Most of the time with hopes for reconciliation. 
But reconciliation itself is a longer and more involved process. And sometimes reconciliation is possible, and sometimes it's not. But forgiveness is a decision in our hearts to release our right for revenge to the Lord, trust Him for justice so we can be free to love. Forgiveness is the choice to surrender the poison of bitterness to God. Because we realize that when left unchecked, bitterness only poisons and hardens our hearts. And it all begins with an offense. And actually, the Greek word for offense means bait. Isn't that interesting? Someone disrespects you. They hurt somebody you love. Cut you off in traffic. Stops talking to you. Disappoints you. Takes from you. That's an offense. And God's enemy uses offense like bait. Just bite it. Dwell on it. Rehearse all the reasons why you're right and they're wrong in your head. Replay the scene until anger consumes you. And then think of a way to make them pay. But once you bite it, the poison of that offense begins to harden our hearts. You may have heard it said that holding on to unforgiveness is like drinking poison and expecting it to hurt the other person. But bitterness forms, in bitterness it forms a wall around our heart. In part that's because we want to protect ourselves from future pain and rejection. But when we harden our heart and form that wall, it doesn't just keep out the bad, it also keeps out the good. It paralyzes our ability to love, to receive love, to live as the free people Christ made us to be. And Martin Luther King said it. He said, he who is devoid of the power to forgive is devoid of the power of love. But I get it, right? When bitterness lodges itself into our hearts, It can feel like there's no way out. And I've said it, and I've heard it said. People say things like, I don't know if I can forgive. But if you realize that bitterness or anger have a stranglehold on your heart, or you've built up thick walls around you, where do we turn? Where do we go? Well, first realize this. That even while we were enemies of God, Christ forgave us so we could be free. Let's let's go back to Luke 23, 34. And again, at this point in the story, Jesus would have been unrecognizable because of all the suffering he'd undergone. While yes, he was fully God, he was also fully human. And so no pain was lost on him. And crucifixion wasn't just designed for maximum physical pain, but maximum humiliation. Yet, Jesus, in this moment, looking at his murderers, hoists himself up on the nails and his wrists and his feet just long enough to draw the breath necessary to pray, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. And while we may imagine this scene and say, wow, how could Jesus do that for them? The forgiveness he extends here wasn't just for his murderers then, it's for us now. Because this forgiveness wasn't just for those who slandered him then, but for all of us who traded the truth of God for a lie about him. The forgiveness wasn't just for Pontius Pilate who crucified Jesus to save his own tail, but for any of us who caved to social pressure and pushed God away. 
It's not just for his mockers, but for any of us who have ever laughed at evil. It was extended toward those who committed violence against him and to any of us who have hurt another made in God's image. It's not just for those who took his clothes and crucified him, but for any of us who exchanged him for money, glory, drugs, porn, stuff, name it. The forgiveness was for them, for us, for me, for you. And where God to require that the full weight of justice be paid for what we have done. How could any of us stand? But on the cross, divine justice and mercy came together in the one who died our death to forgive our sin so we could be free. And Because of that, our freedom to forgive others flows from the forgiveness we've received. Please lean in here, if anything. Forgiving others requires that first we have a realistic humility about our own sin. Grudges and bitterness has has this nasty little trick. It does a remarkable job of spotlighting other people's sin but completely blinding us to our own. And if we can't get honest about our own sin, then we'll continue to feel superior to whoever it is that we're holding a grudge against. Years ago, I had a friend, a close friend, who just stopped talking to me, and I never really understood why. And I was ticked. <laughs> I tried to reach out, nothing I, just the anger was, was, was coming up in me, and I was rehearsing all the things that I would finally say when I got to talk to him. But then in prayer, God got honest with me, and I felt this thought come to my mind that says, have you ever stopped talking to me? Have you ever cut me off? <laughs> and God says, and how many times has he forgiven me? See, it wasn't just the Romans and the Jews who sent Jesus to that cross. It was also my sin, your sin, all our sin against God. And yet Jesus said, Father, forgive them. But Kirk, you don't understand. They don't deserve my forgiveness. And neither did we deserve his. Forgiveness isn't something that anybody earns. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. That while we were still sinners, the meaning still enemies of God, Christ died for us. And he died in our place to satisfy the justice of God for our sin with his life. And he did it all that we might be free from sin, shame, and condemnation. So when we realize this, we realize it wasn't the nails that held him to that cross. It was his love. His love for you and me. And when we realize just what it means that we are forgiven, that's when the love of God begins to break down the hardened places within us. And if we've built up walls around ourselves to protect ourselves from pain or rejection, it is the divine grace of God. It is that warmth of his grace that begins to melt those down. That encountering his love, his grace, 
that's when we become free to forgive and love like Jesus. And as we practice forgiveness with others, we testify to the liberating love of Christ for all. I think another reason why it's so hard for us to forgive sometimes is because we don't really see it modeled in our society. There's a, there's a New York Times columnist named Elizabeth Brunig. She says it well. She says, as a society, she's talking about secular society. We have absolutely no coherent story, none whatsoever, about how a person who's done wrong can atone, make amends, and retain some continuity between their life before and after the mistake. In other words, she says, if our society is trying to make sense of why we should forgive, it struggles to find answers. And I think she's right, which is why we see that our, our culture's first reaction is to cut people off, is to, to make enemies, to divide, or to cancel somebody over just a misstep. But at the center of our faith is the Christ who died to forgive his enemies. And if we know that we are the forgiven people, we ought to stand out. How? Well, first, as the forgiven, we put forgiveness into practice with one another. Can we get real for a second? If, if you've been in church long enough, if you've really sought to dig in and grow with other people and build relationships, you're going to get hurt. Because we're a bunch of people in here, all of us recognize we need Jesus, all of us recognize that we're, we're works in progress, under construction, so to speak, and there are times that not the best sides of us come out toward one another, we end up saying something hurtful, or we do something that's painful, we tick each other off. To add to that, if you look around this room, this is a Christ-centered community, right? But, but we wouldn't normally all get along with each other outside of this place. We look different. We have different personalities. Some are blue collar, some are white collar, different generations, different cultures. We don't all approach politics in the same way. Somebody on the outside looking in would go, like, how do, those, how do these people come together? Our answer, we share one Lord who gave his life to forgive us. And so if you really dig in, join a small group, join a serve team, start friendships, get together, start building relationships with one another, eventually somebody's going to rub us the wrong way. Somebody's going to do something that's going to harm us. We're not trying to, right? But like we end up doing things that are hurtful. And this is where we begin to practice forgiveness among us. So let me make this clear. Forgiveness is not a feeling. It's a choice. It's the choice to forgive that is meant to lead our feelings. Again, forgiveness, as we said earlier, is the decision to release our right to revenge. And it's hard because bitterness wants that person to pay. But we're choosing to renounce our right to pay back. But forgiveness is a daily choice. Notice I said daily choice. Because sometimes we think that somebody's done something wrong, say, I forgive you, and we think it's done. But then the next day, all they've done starts replaying in our heads, and we pick up that grudge all over again. So forgiveness is a daily choice. 
to not replay all the hurtful scenes in our minds over and over if we can, to not gossip, to not give silent treatment, but to pray for the person and work for their good when and as we're able. Or forgiveness looks like, hey, I have something against somebody, I'm going to go actually get it right with them and talk to them. And at times, again, if you're, if you're struggling to know how do I manage my particular situation, then come talk to one of us. Because if, especially if you've been the victim of abuse like, and somebody is not a safe person, I do not recommend going up to that person and having a conversation, okay? Like we, need, we do need to be wise and get counsel on how to go about this. But again, forgiveness is a daily choice to renounce my right to revenge, And it is that daily choice that over time the feelings will follow and the anger will begin to come down. And when the world sees a community who practices forgiveness across generations, ethnicities, socioeconomic lines, and backgrounds, and that testifies to Jesus. But we also testify to Christ when we bless those who curse us. Yeah, I don't really like that one either. <laughs> like, what, what? But again, think of the response of the Emmanuel AME Church to Dylan Roof. They did not minimize the pain he caused them. They did not forget it. But they renounced hatred in their hearts and chose to forgive. Thus living out what Jesus said. You may have heard it said, Jesus said, like you may have heard it said around you or in our society, in our culture, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. You guys heard versions of that? Yeah, of course. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. But Jesus, like doesn't forgiveness just make us doormats for the world? But look at Jesus again on that cross when he said, Father, forgive them. Was Jesus a doormat? No. Because by forgiving, he trusted the victory, the justice into God's hands. And the victory was won when God rose him from the dead. The forgiveness isn't a being a doormat, but it's the very path of victory. Because forgiveness says, I humble myself. I renounce my right for revenge. I trust God with that. And God says, those who humble themselves will be exalted. And so when we forgive, pray for, bless those who stand against us, we are choosing to not fall for the bait of offense but we're choosing to trust others in this world into God's hands so that we can be free to love. To forgive is to be truly free. And in fact, when we forgive those who hurt us, it is a picture of Christ that the world can't ignore. And 2,000 years ago, when the church of Jesus began, It began in the city of Jerusalem, which was a dog-eat-dog divided world. Jewish zealots hated the Romans. Romans wanted to squash any uprisings or or riots. Pharisees loathed the Sadducees. Sadducees turned it right back and right back at you, man. Everyone knew who their enemies were, and they built walls, and they went to war, but the Christians were different. And even when they were arrested and beaten, they loved And in Acts 7, we read about one seemingly ordinary man who is filled with God's Spirit named Stephen. 
And Stephen shared Christ boldly, freely with others. But for that, a powerful group of Jews opposed him and cooked up false witnesses who could condemn him, and he was sentenced to be stoned. But then at the end of Acts 7, as he fell to his knees, the last words he cried out were, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. That sound familiar? That despite all the hatred coming his way, he was free to forgive as Christ had forgiven him. Did that make him a doormat? Well, the one watching and giving approval to Stephen Stoning was a man with hatred filling his heart named Saul. Saul is later called Paul, as in Paul the Apostle. And we can't be sure what was happening in Saul's heart that day. But I'm pretty confident that this was a moment that he could never be able to get out of his mind. And would at least leave a lingering question of how possibly could a man forgive those who are taking his life? It's because Stephen knew the one who'd forgiven him. So my question to all of us is do you know the one who's forgiven you? Are you even aware of your own need for forgiveness? Have you ever received that forgiveness of Christ for yourself? Yes, he gave it, but have you received it? Because Christ died to forgive you so that you could be free from shame and guilt. And not just free from, but free for a relationship with the living God now and forever. And if you've never received it, I actually want to give you an opportunity to do that right now. So we don't do this often, but I'm going to ask everybody just to bow your head right where you are. Just you and the Lord. And if you've never received his forgiveness, if you've never begun a relationship with God, beginning with receiving his forgiveness, then I want to invite you to just pray these words after me. Again, I'm just giving an expression to the sincerity of a heart. If you'll pray after me and say, God, I need your forgiveness. I've sinned against you. Forgive me. Thank you that you died to set me free. You set me free from sin, guilt, shame. Set me free for a relationship with you. Fill me with your spirit and lead me to follow you. In Jesus' name, amen.